So uh, I'm Nicholas Drosomatos. Uh, I work for Red Hat, and this is... Mandis Mumbach. I am a Partner Solutions Architect with AWS. Well, welcome. <laughs> yeah, so uh, today we are going to talk to you guys about uh, digital transformation and why do you want to digitally transform your business, right? So just for a kind of an idea for us, for Nick and myself, to see who's in the crowd, uh, who here currently is running some sort of containerized environment or containerized workflow? Right, now, of those who are actually running it on something like Kubernetes or ECS, okay, who is using something like OpenShift? Okay, fantastic. That gives us a, a better idea. Can I have the, the clicker? Thank you very much. So I'm going to bore you guys a little bit with some theory and some ideas, and then Nick's going to do all the fun stuff and talk about the technology while you're really here, right? Because you're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to Nick. Uh, so I know you have the accent, though. I so. have the accent that makes me sound right. Yeah, so I'm going to keep with that. Aluminium. Right? <laughs> Aluminium. <laughs> Aluminium. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, right, so we're going to talk about digital transformation. And digital transformation has become really important to businesses. You cannot, as a business today, whether you are the giant in your industry or if you are the newcomer to the industry, you cannot afford to stay stagnant and not digitally transform your business and take a digital-first approach, right? Uh, a company that actually envisions this the best and is the poster child for digital transformation and industry disruption is obviously Airbnb. I mean, Airbnb was able to completely disrupt the industry that they, were, they are a part of. They took the hotel industry and flipped it on its head. They were capable of make, becoming the biggest hotel chain in the world without owning a single piece of property. They are serving millions and millions of reservations per hour, and they are doing that with a team of five ops engineers. They are only paying for the resources that they need, so they're not over-provisioning. They're only paying for when they use it and when their customers need it, so they, are having a, they run a very lean ecosystem, and they're able to manage and iterate and deploy their business in a manner that keeps them relevant to their customers. And they, if, because they keep themselves relevant to their customers, their competitors are struggling to catch up because they are constantly providing their customers with an experience that they like. And therefore, their customers have no reasons to go to any of the other providers. And this has disrupted the industry to the point that traditional hotel chains are struggling to kind of get to that point and catch up and try and innovate to make themselves more relevant again. And we talk about what these things are that make a company like Airbnb successful. What makes them digital disruptors? And through all of our experience with customers like Netflix and Airbnb and all of the other what we call cloud-native first-class citizens, we have identi identified three industry shifts and three categories that make these customers and these companies capable of disrupting industries. The first is availability. The, the, their ability to always be there when their customers need them. Because if they're not there when the customer opens the website or opens the app, then what's the customer going to do? They're going to move on to the next place, right? Elasticity ties into that as well. In elasticity, they need to be able to scale out when their customers need them and when it's like, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or the vacation season or spring break, obviously they're going to be serving more requests than during the middle of the year. So they need to be able to scale out and not need to keep all of that infrastructure around for the rest of the year and then spend a lot of money paying for that infrastructure. And they need to also be able to adapt quickly if something like that happens. Now, a very, very core part to their success is agility. 
We are constantly in this industry, in our tech industry, releasing new technologies that make the fantastic and the almost magical possible. At reInvent alone, we launched dozens of services and new features this week. Things ranging from infrastructure right through to the top tier things of machine learning and all those exciting technologies that differentiate that, that business to a point that serves their customers that it feels like they're holding a piece of magic in their hands. And your ability as a business to adopt that technology as quickly as possible, make that a part of your business, is what we call agility. So being more agile and being able to push out those new technologies, adopt them, make them a part of you, is a very big part of the success of net native or cloud native citizens. So let's talk about availability in AWS. I already gave you a quick definition about it, but the, the actual theory behind it is that high availability refers to a system or component that is continuously operational. At Amazon Web Services, we constantly talk about the, uh, the availability of S3. We have a 99.9 .9 to the 11th 9 availability. That means something like one in every 200 million, or I don't know, it's a ridiculous number of requests will fail, right? That is what availability is. And the way that we are capable of delivering that availability and how our customers like Netflix and Airbnb is capable of delivering that availability is through our significant range of AWS regions. We have AWS regions that are populated all around the world, which means that you can deploy your applications and your infrastructures in every region that you are serving customers. And you can make sure and you can build for failure to make sure that if there is an impacting event in any of those regions, that you can fail over to a second region. Customers like Netflix have complete failover region uh, schedules and, and games. They even have open source technologies like Chaos Monkey that is a testing suite that they can run that literally goes in and randomly destroys infrastructure in their environment to test their failure capability. And they use, make extensive use of our AWS services to give them that functionality. Now, in the very unlikely event of an AWS region, in one AWS region, you can easily fail over to another one for, because we have things like Direct Connect. And we have, and we, this week, we are launched uh, inter-region VPC peering, right? But I say the very unlikely event that an AWS region will fail because the way our AWS regions are constructed is built to be durable and reliable. The first level of durability and reliability is on our availability zones. We have multiple availability zones in each region, which means that you can deploy your applications in, in one or two or three availability zones. And what is an availability zone? An availability zone is a collection, a number of data centers. Each availability zone has one or more DC. And most start around three DCs, and we can have up to six DCs. And every availability zone data center, or every availability zone, is built in a geographical manner that it is less than a certain amount of milliseconds, like a quarter milliseconds apart in latency, from each other, but also geographically far enough so in the event of something like an earthquake or a tornado or those type of things happening that it should not affect another availability zone. Our data centers consist of between 50,000 and 80,000 servers, which, and all of these data centers are built to be independent of each other. 
each of them have their own power supplies, their own connectivity, their own breakout, and their own service teams to make sure that any impact on one DC does not impact the other. We also limit the size of our data centers to 80,000 servers because we don't want larger DCs. A large DC is undesirable because if that fails, the blast radius is bigger. This way, we keep our blast radius smaller. Right. So we have native AWS services that helps you achieve availability in an easy manner. Uh, Amazon VPC, which abstracts these ideas of multi-AZs uh, multi and uh, Amazon VPC through an easy-to-understand interface that you are used to in an on-premise environment or a native networking environment. You specify network ranges and ciders, and that translates to availability zones. So your application developers and platform engineers don't need to worry about the complexities of what the AZs do. They just understand the native concept of IPs and ciders. We have services like AWS Shield and AWS Web Application Firewall that we front in, in front of your application as a managed service, that is a transparent service in front of your applications that secure you from things like DDoS attacks, SQL injection attacks, and other things that might impact your performance of your application. And we manage that transparently for you. So any connection that comes to your application gets vetted by a, a team of security experts that is constantly monitoring the world wide web and the transient, transient internet state to make sure that your applications are secure. Services like Elastic Load Balancing and Cloud, uh, our CloudWatch monitoring, together with our ASGs, allow you to obviously uh, grow your applications and scale out, right? So that's where elasticity comes in. Elasticity is the degree to which a system can adapt to the workload that is required uh, and to provision based on that. So we have native elastic services as well. I spoke about auto-scaling and our CloudWatch metrics. So you can have an application running in EC2 or ECS or Kubernetes or OpenShift, and you can have custom metrics reporting up to the CloudWatch system or the CloudWatch service. Based on those metrics, you can then define triggers at which point you want to auto-scale your infrastructure. We also make available managed services like SQS and SNS. If you want to build a service that, has a queuing, uh, that uses queuing to consume messages, produce messages at scale, SQS is a great service for that. It's a completely abstracted managed service. It scales on its own, it scales independently of your infrastructure, and we will make sure that when you post or consume a message that you will have enough throughput and enough capacity to do that. SNS, if you have an application that is sending push notifications to mobile devices, we can do millions and millions of push notifications with a single API request from your application. Uh, Amazon Route 53 allows you to route your, your application request and your DNS request based on the closest latency for the consumer and therefore spin up and auto scale infrastructure in the region that you want and not over provision in the wrong region. Agility. I've already made it very clear that I personally believe that agility is the core that makes a company like Airbnb successful. It is the, the, the capability that to adapt quickly and to smoothly adapt and integrate new technologies with your application that makes you a cloud-native citizen, that makes you an industry disruptor. And that is the key thing that we should all strive to as a part of our digital transformation. Now, all of these things, to be agile is difficult. 
we understand that there are concepts that we can use, like CI/CD platforms, to give us a little bit of that agility. Being able to push code to a, to a repo and having that propagate through your pipelines and automatically build and deploy is a standard that we have come to know and trust. But it is also something that is difficult to achieve if you don't have the in-house knowledge on how to do that. It is something that is difficult to achieve if you don't have the experience for your engineers and your developers to build that from scratch. So we have worked together with our partners, partners like Red Hat, to abstract that a little bit more for you and to make it easier for you to achieve availability, elasticity, and agility if you don't have the native knowledge and understanding in your business. You all have a product that you are proud of and that you want to focus on. You do not want to focus on the infrastructure and the services around it to make your application work. You want to focus on making a good ex experience and building a great experience for your customers. So we have application platforms and application platform partners that will allow you to accelerate your development and allow you to easier adopt new technologies and integrate new services. It will provide you with the capability to faster iterate on your applications. Patches, security fixes, in, in, ingestion of new technologies. And more importantly, provide a unified experience for your development team, as well as your systems engineers team. Whether the developer is building an, uh, his application and testing his application on his laptop, or whether he's deploying that application inside of a production environment, the experience is one that is unified. The application deployed on his developer laptop will act and work exactly the same as the application that is deployed into production. And it is as simple as the developer committing his code to a code tree like Git. The industry responded when they understood that cloud-native services and cloud-native customers and, and, and businesses need to become idempotent. They need to become transparent and they need to become portable. And how did the industry uh, respond? The industry responded with the containerized standard. So a containerized standard allows for application developers and application engineers and systems engineers to package applications in a way that is easily portable and always idempotent, which means that every time you run the application, the result will be the same, the same as in any environment that it gets deployed in. So an application platform like OpenShift that we will be speaking about today allows you to control that whole environment to make that portability available to you in one easily deployed platform. You start off with something like Atomic Host, which is a small and fast and secure operating system to run your Linux containers in. You can also use a standardized runtime inside of that container to make sure that you have all of the up-to-date security patches and the latest security additions into the, into the trusted runtime of that container. And that is all packaged inside of an open source container framework like Docker. Now, Nick has some insight into what the difference is between a project like Kubernetes and a product like OpenShift Container Platform. So Nick, if I had to understand the difference between why I should look at using Kubernetes or why I should use OpenShift, what are the differentiating things I should keep in mind? Well, I mean, the main things are Kubernetes is an open source project, right? Google actually helped 
build Kubernetes. Now there's a gigantic community that's actually helping to further the development of Kubernetes. But Kubernetes is not like a minimum viable product, right? It's not something that is a complete end-to-end -end solution. It doesn't include the host. It doesn't include um, a lot of the uh, software-defined networking components and pieces. There's no CI/CD. There's no RBAC or OAuth authentications. Uh, things along those lines. Compared to like something, for example, like a product like OpenShift, right? A completely integrated infrastructure that from end to end, from host all the way up to the container runtime and the containers themselves is actually guaranteed to be forward and backward compatible. So in Kubernetes, if I use Kubernetes as my application uh, orchestration engine, I still have to do a lot of work. I still need to make sure that my host is secure and up to date with security patches. I need to manage the networking layer, uh, the SDN. I need to make sure that my integrations and my automatic pipelines, I need to build all of that of, out, of, you know, out of the box on my own. Uh, but OpenShift kind of just ships all of that for me and I can trust all of it. Essentially, yeah. So um, on the next slide, if we move to it, you could actually see specifically Kubernetes really is just the orchestration piece and actually has some of the storage bits and components in it, right? Whereas with OpenShift, we have everything from the actual host level to the security, the telemetry, so uh, aggregation of logs, metrics, um, really all the important things that you need. Uh, persistent storage through container-native storage, or you could even use third-party storage, right? So you could use uh, block-based storage or elastic file system storage. Um, the container registry, which is obviously incredibly important when you're writing your code and you're deploying your containers, you need to store them somewhere. Right. Um, and then obviously the networking and the orchestration piece. So when I'm building something, where is it getting deployed? How is it actually, get, you know, routes being provisioned? How do some of these services or applications know where they're living? And how's it, how does the operation team know where they are, right? right? If you don't have anything along those lines and you're just deploying containers out, what happens if you get the same series of containers for an application all on the same host and you lose that host? Yep, that's true. So OpenShift provides me with the orchestration that I get from Kubernetes, but it also allows me to monitor it better, it gives me the security, and it gives me more functionality without me spending time building that myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the Kubernetes project itself is amazing, right? I mean, it's open source, it's conceived by Google. Um, Red Hat and Google are currently the top contributors. Um, it, Amazon is actually starting to contribute quite a bit of code. Um, it's just, if you look at the number of commits and if you look at how it's grown and the new features and how quickly these features are being rolled out, it's actually, it's really amazing. But at the same time, you're kind of looking at it and you're, you're scared when it comes to a production environment because all these constant iterations and releases, you're never guaranteed that the container runtime and that there's gonna be forward and backwards compatibility, right? You don't actually have anything because it is a project, not a product. Um, then if you take a look at like, for example, Red Hat Atomic Host is also an open source project that we ended up converting over to a product. Um, it was born from the project Atomic, um, conceived by Red Hat. And really the idea was to take uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux and make it as small, fast, and secure as possible with a premise to run it uh, so that you can run your container runtime on it, right? And it was simplified. We used uh, OS tree. Um, you could do configurations through like cloud init and things along those lines. But really, you know, it's just one piece of a, of a multi-part puzzle, um, which is the Red Hat OpenShift project and the solution itself, which is the container platform. So that allows you to actually have pieces like building of automation, CI/CD pipelines, uh, deployment automation, uh, determining where you're actually going to schedule these workloads setting CPU resources or memory resources and reallocating them when those resources go idle, um, having the ability to burst when you actually need to. So if you're using something like Amazon and you're running multiple you know, container hosts and you actually need to scale out, mm -hmm. you have the ability to do that. And then 
you know, one of the main things that we're also trying to work on is the ability to not just scale up, but scale back, right? right. So that's the, the whole thing about, you know, ASGs, which makes them absolutely amazing is, hey, you know, I want my, my hosts to actually be able to scale depending on my workloads, and I don't want to just have to spend money for things to sit idle. Right. I mean, Kubernetes, uh, the, the new release of Kubernetes allows for that intelligence to spin up infrastructure as well. And I mean, how easily and how quickly do you integrate upstream changes from Kubernetes into a platform like OpenShift that is orchestrated by Kubernetes? So, I mean, obviously we want to incorporate any of the new features as quickly as we can, but we also want to make sure that the entire stack end-to-end -end from the kernel to the container runtime to the actual containers themselves are all backwards and forwards compatible, right? right. So we, we probably trail a little bit you know, slower than like if Kubernetes 1.7 and 1.8 come out, right? We're probably a few weeks behind. But we actually do that because we have customers running real production workloads, taking real transactions from real customers. Yeah. And last thing they want in the world is the entire infrastructure to go down and suddenly the shareholders all sell off their <laughs> stock, right? Right, but we're talking weeks. We're not talking months or years of delay, right? Like, I mean, we're pretty close to the release cadence. We're pretty close of, to, of to lockstep. And OpenShift Origin, which is our upstream open source version, is actually almost in lockstep with the releases wow. themselves. That's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that comes because of all the, the contribution that we actually have back to the Kubernetes community. So we actually are helping to drive some of that um, you know, technology and, and where the roadmaps are going. I mean, right. as we all know, like containers have been around for years, right? Containers aren't anything new. It's not like, you know, these were just invented. Um, you know, you could look at how C groups, you know, existed yeah. or uh, mainframes, you know. Yeah. I mean, who out there has played with Linux containers before Docker was around? You know, name groups and C groups. Yeah, a bunch of us, right? I mean, we know the container ecosystem. Yeah. So why, if I know the eco container ecosystem and I know Docker, why should I worry about an orchestration platform or even something like OpenShift? Well, I mean, okay, so Docker made a really easy to standardize image formats, right? We can all agree on that, that Docker is the de facto standard for image formats now. Um, Red Hat kind of stepped in and we said, well, you know what, you need a secure and hardened operating system to run that container runtime and those images. And, and so we kind of stepped forward and started building our, our ecosystem. And then we realized, though, like the big thing was, yeah, you could go out. You could take out a bunch of stuff off the shelf. You could go all open source, or you could even buy a bunch of different products and meld them together. But how are you going to guarantee like, what's inside that container is safe, or it's not going to compromise your infrastructure? Or how will those applications and libraries that they depend on be updated? Or what about my CI CD pipeline when a new release of Jenkins comes out? How do I know that that's actually going to work with everything? Um, and also, what it, will it work from host to host? Maybe I'm running one version behind in my production environment or, or in staging or whichever environment, development environment. You want to be able to guarantee consistency, right? You want to have certified container images, certified middleware. You want to have uh, a safe registry or have multiple different registries that you're pulling from, you know, federated registries yeah. in a sense. I'm a little bit confused, Nick. I mean, the promise that people have made to me about using Docker is that I'll always have consistency, right? I mean, they tell me that I just have to build my applications for containers and I'll have the security consistency that goes with it. You're saying that's not completely true? Well, you can think of it this way, right? You could go and buy all the parts to build the Tesla, but are you going to build it the same way that Tesla is going to build that car? Probably not. Probably not, right? right. So. You know, are you going to do the regression testing when there's a new software update? Are you going to actually go and determine when parts are actually deemed to be faulty? You know, replacing all those things yourself. Right. So, you know, running running containers with Kubernetes really Kubernetes is great. It gives you the the orchestration piece of it, determines where your workloads are being placed, 
determines auto scaling and a, th a few other things. Um, then you need, obviously, some way to actually store your container images, right? right? So then we started adding things like the Docker registry. Then you need no networking. You have to actually know what's talking to what, what should be exposed to what, how these things should be talking to each other, not just on the same hosts, but what about on multiple different hosts? Or what, what about multiple different environments? What if some of this stuff is actually talking back to Dynamo, in a sense, right? Yeah. So how am I going to start you know, making sure that all of these things are going to be compatible with those ports? And so if I really want my application to be scalable across multiple nodes, then I have to put another layer of networking inside of it. Typically, yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, Kubernetes doesn't do that for me. No. Right. And then you know, the, the other aspect of it is like persistent storage, right? So you know, the, in the early iterations of containers, they were great for stateless applications. And then a lot of people started saying, well, I have a lot of these legacy applications. You know, maybe they're older mainframe applications that they wanted to migrate over. And they needed to be highly available, and they needed to have things like shared storage and persistent storage, because if a container failed, they'd need to be able to start up on another host. And those, those artifacts, whatever they were, needed to be preserved, right? So that's another thing that you had to take into consideration. So things like container native storage that we helped build, which is you know, essentially Gluster and a combination of Fuse that actually builds a pod that ties directly to the container. Mm -hmm. If the container moves, then that storage can actually move al along with it. Okay. And then obviously, you know, other things that you need, uh, you know, telemetry, right? Logging, data acquisition, financial services companies need to be able to actually understand when transactions are being done. You know, we have to go through auditing and things along those lines, right? Yeah, so we're not just talking about basic monitoring here. We're talking about in-depth, like, understanding what's happening in the application and application-level metrics that we can expose. Absolutely, yeah. It's not just the metrics, it's the logging. It's, you know, what happens if my container doesn't start? Being able to debug it and, and have an easy, readable code or the ability to actually get into the shell and not have to SSH directly into you know, the container host itself and then actually you know, plug into the Docker runtime. Right? Yeah, getting into a host in something like a, a Kubernetes cluster can be a pain, man. Yeah. Well, and then you have to determine where is that pod running to begin with, too. Right? Yeah. And then, obviously, you need security. You need RBAC. You need OAuth. You need built-in security plugins. Whatever. You know, one of the big things that we really were looking at when we were building some of the OpenShift stuff is... You know, Kubernetes is great for one project, but who is just one company is not just using one project. There's many different products. There's many different groups that are working on a lot of these things together. Um, and you don't want to have one group have access to some, uh, someone else's stuff, right? Whether okay. it's the registry or maybe it's the actual container images or the infrastructure, or maybe it's resource quota management, things along those lines. Um, and then also tying into like OAuth, right? right? And then SE Linux to guarantee that the kernel and that the actual runtime is hardened. So if I'm running Kubernetes as my company's deployment process and I've got my applications running in there, but I don't want my different teams to be exposed to each other's code or each other's data, is, do I need to do a significant amount of work to, to make that happen? There's, yeah, out of the box, there's not really anything that's you know, directly integrated into that project, right? right? It's the main difference between project and product. Okay. Um, and then if you want to talk about defining as code, yeah, I mean, that's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, as a developer, I am a developer, right? That's where I come from. So uh, for me to have that unified experience and to be able to push through everything to the end uh, and make sure that when I deliver my application to the team that's going to deploy it, uh, it needs to work the same way that I did. You know, I hated those discussions when I had to, I was put my life and soul into an application and I was developing and I was taking hours of my life out of that and it runs perfectly in my dev environment. And then I give it to our deployment team and they come back to me and say the application doesn't work. 
work, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's soul-crushing for me as a developer, right? Uh, and it's not their fault. It's because I built it in something completely different that they did. Or different runtime version, different version of Java, whatever Exactly, it was, right? Yeah. There were so many different things that, that go wrong. Or where they come back and they go like, well, you're using this library that we, our NetSec team hasn't secured, right? That we haven't whitelisted yet. Uh, so I need to then completely refactor my code to make use of another library, right? And that could have been, been stopped if I had that unified environment that I was running in. So the definition of code is really important for me. The, abil the ability to build my application inside of my own environment um, on my developer laptop, define the code as an idempotent uh, item spec, a YAML specification, and then posting that application definition into any environment, whether that is my on-premise environment, my dev environment, my cloud environment, uh, and being confident that that actual deployment will be transient, will, it will be the same thing every time. I can have confidence that it will run the same way that it was meant to run while I was developing it. Um, so, so that's really important for me. And then I started, it, another thing that was really great about this is that not only do you define your application code, but also the requirements and dependencies around that code, right? So if I'm a developer that needs a database, then I need to uh, define that inside of my spec as well. Right. And traditionally, I used to wait weeks and months for my engineering team, my sys engineering team, to actually provision a database if I need a database. I remember right? those days, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> man, it was frustrating. I mean, I would work really hard, and my manager would be on my back, and he'd be like, I need that code tomorrow, and the code would be done, but the database wouldn't be there. Or the storage isn't provisioned yet on or top of Or the storage it. hasn't provisioned <laughs> yet, or, or anything like that. And I would just basically be sitting there waiting for them to, to do that for me. Uh, so, so all of that, being able to define that in my spec and self-provision the dependencies that my application need is really, really important for me. Yeah, self-service is the holy grail. Exactly, right? right? The self-service thing makes my life so much easier. And, I, and the nice thing is, all of these dependencies get managed by OpenShift and made sure that it is exposed in exactly the same way in any environment. So whether I do it in my hybrid environment or in the cloud, it's exactly the same. So we at AWS Services, um, decided that we needed to expose some of our managed services, right? Because you guys know that we have services like RDS, which is a managed database service, and we have services like EMR, which is our Elastic MapReduce service. That is a completely managed service that customers don't need to worry about. They just provision it and make it available. But traditionally how it works today, if your developers want that, you probably have an ops team that goes in and provisions it, sets up the IAM permissions, and does all of that hard work for you, and then finally it gives the connection string and URL to the developer to integrate into his application. That's still not a self-provisioning kind of experience. And the developer needs to understand how AWS works, they need to understand IAM credentials and all of those type of things, and that's not a great experience for, for the developer. So how does that tie into like high availability then, you know, when you're looking at like containers and then tying into some of the cloud-native services of, of AWS? Well, that's a, that's a good question, because if I'm running a high availability cluster that's sp spaced across availability zones or multiple regions or environments, if my application needs to uh, die, or the container dies on one host and moves to another host, they need to be able to connect to the services that were provisioned, or the new service needs to be brought up um, and restored to the state that it was previously, okay. and it needs to be done automatically. Uh, so the AWS Service Broker uh, is something that we are working with, to, uh, with Red Hat. And we are very, very excited that we launched it this week. We actually open sourced the code yesterday. It's available on GitHub, and everybody can go to our AWS Labs repository and check out the code and look at, the, at our documentation to see how you can use it. But let me tell you what the service broker does. 
The service broker is built around the Open Service Broker API, which is an industry standard API that has been adopted by platforms like Kubernetes, OpenShift, um, and Cloud Foundry right now, and other platforms will be adopting it soon. So it's an industry standard that allows you to provision third-party services in these application platforms. So basically what the service broker does is it kind of acts like a little bit of a, like a, an artificial Alexa, right, inside of the OpenShift <laughs> platform or inside the platform, where the application developer in that YAML definition that we just spoke about can do something like service broker, give me an S3 bucket, right? The developer doesn't need to know how to set up an S3 bucket. The service broker will do it for him. Yeah, I'm waiting for you to program that so that I can actually, you know, start provisioning different things through Alexa. <laughs> well, maybe we could. I mean, we can do that with OpenShift, right? I mean, we can build an OpenShift trigger and an Alexa skill easily to deploy my application. I think we should do that as a chalk talk next that. year. That's something that we could do as, to do fun. So yeah, so with this service broker, the application developer will be presented with something like this, right? This is a snapshot of what the console looks like when you go into the OpenShift platform. And you'll see that there's a list of AWS services that the developer can then choose from. So if the developer wants to provision a Redshift cluster, they just click on the Redshift cluster, it brings up a little pop-up, and that would ask them for things like a Redshift cluster name, for example, right? Uh, and what size they want the cluster to be. And the platform itself, without the need for the developer to go into the AWS console or use the AWS CLI or any of the native APIs, the platform itself then goes and provisions that resources for the developer. So I, as a developer, never have to go into the console? You, as the developer, never ever need to touch the AWS API. You don't even need to be aware of the AWS API. The service does it all for you. You just work against the, uh, the OpenShift platform. Wow. And you can either do it in the console by clicking and using your mouse, or you can use the OpenShift CLI, or you can use the YAML spec definition and, and the, provision it as a service, uh, just like any other service that you provision in, in OpenShift. Has anybody here had a chance to look at any of the, the Open Service Brokers? Well, we have a couple, well, one or two, which is great, actually. Okay. I mean, considering yeah. we only launched it like yesterday, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's fantastic, and it's, it really accelerates that development, because now as a developer, I can provision that uh, inside of my application, and it's a self-provisioning process, so when my manager expects my code to be delivered, the infrastructure that my code depends on will also be ready. Right? Yeah, and, and for me, like, when I develop, I don't want to wait in one, you know, or more importantly, I don't care where it gets deployed or how it gets consumed, right? Exactly. I want the operations team to kind of set those policies, and I just want to go and click the things I need and go build it out. Right. So I don't, want to I don't want to worry about the networking layer and the communication layer between the application and the database and all those type of things. My platform needs to do that for me. So my business manager can just ask me to change something or they do these, like, I mean, they do these touch things where they ask the customers for feedback and the customers give feedback. We make changes. We might need to change the back-end database or something like that. Uh -huh. And that's all self-provisioned, right? Wow. So that gives us that agility that makes a company like, like Airbnb really successful. Yeah. So... The launch catalog that we built into the AWS Service Broker uh, has started with 10 services. So we open sourced 10 native AWS services and exposed 10 native AWS services through the launch catalog. And those are the 10 services that you can see on there. The ones that I'm really excited about are, are, are fully managed services, are the ones like Amazon Athena, that allows you to directly query 
data in S3 through a JDBC connection. So wow. you, if you have tons of terabytes of data or gigabytes of data or petabytes of data in S3, you don't need to wait for the provisioning time of an EMR cluster or a database or something like that. You just connect to the Athena JDBC driver, run your query, and get the results. And I'm assuming that's scalable too. And that's totally scalable. I mean, it's, it's infinitely scalable. And it's automatically provisioned for you. So the, the platform goes, it sets up your schema definition and everything for you, and then it returns the connection string as well as the JDBC driver that you need to actually query the, the application. The, another fantastic thing about the application service broker, or the, open, the AWS service broker, is that you don't need to run your OpenShift platform or your OpenShift deployment in AWS to use the AWS service broker. I don't understand. You can deploy the AWS service broker in your on-premise environment as well. Wow. Okay, so I'm running OpenShift in my own data center. Maybe I'm running OpenShift in AWS, and I'm using S3 for my storage. Yeah. I can provision S3 from either of those locations. You can provision S3 from either of those locations using the AWS Service Broker. The service that you provision will not be provisioned inside of your, inside of your data center, right. but they will be accessible by your data center. Wow. Right? So that, that unified experience that we were talking about, that still exists. You don't have to change the way that your applications work between your on-premises environment and this, the cloud because it's a unified experience. You can deploy the service broker in both locations uh, or even one location and have both locations work off the same. Or multiple on, regions or whatever. Or multiple regions yeah. or whatever environment you want to do. So, you know, as a customer of AWS and a user of OpenShift, what this really means to me is that it gives you this really tight integration to AWS native services, which makes you capable of adopting more native application development cycles that you, for your business, right? And that makes you more cloud native. And ultimately, it digitally transforms your business to a point where you can be as agile and elastic and as available as a company like Airbnb. And then with the usage of our regions, you get this global footprint, so you never need to worry about going offline if you build for failure. You get that additional security layer that, you, that we've come to know and trust with yeah. something like the Atomic Project Atomic and Red Hat Linux. And something that we really want to emphasize in, 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 our part, in, in the Red Hat environment, in the, in the container environment, is this really extensive partner ecosystem that we have. The partnerships that AWS and Red Hat are building together with the greater ecosystem and what we're constantly iterating on and adding new features. Uh, and this is leading to the service broker only has 10 services today, but we aim to have almost all of our services uh, available in the service broker by Q2 next year. So, yeah, so services like recognition, right? We've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of work to do, but we're hard at work, and we're working very hard with the Red Hat team to make that a, that a possibility. So, I mean, the recognition's going to go in. Polly's going to go in. Um, all of these services that we launched this week that everybody's so excited about, the ML services that we launched, all of those services will be available in, in, in the service broker very soon next year. Very cool. So, really, I mean, to kind of summarize, right, OpenShift... The, the, the general design of it is to build, deploy, run, orchestrate, and manage container-based applications. And the key word is really at scale, right? We wanted to be able to make it easy to manage production-based environments or development-based environments at scale. Um, and what it consists of, if we move to the next slide, it's not really just running, about running containers, right? We, we all know we can run containers on our laptop, we can run containers on an individual host, it doesn't really matter, that's not really interesting. Where it gets interesting is when you start looking at like Docker build and Docker compose or doing source damage where you're actually taking code that you're checking into like your GitHub or your Jenkins and you know, doing some type of artifact repository and pulling that information out and actually building code on the fly. So whenever someone makes a commit, 
it actually triggers a new build. That's where it becomes interesting, right? Then you need deployment of those images. Where are they going to go? How, where are they going to land? How do I guarantee high availability of where these applications, these containers, these projects are actually being distributed? Where they're, and then on top of it, from an operations perspective, how do I know if there is a problem, what host it's running on? How do I actually you know, reverse engineer and start understanding? How do I get those logs? How do I see those metrics and utilization? Then obviously having the ability, you know, to do like rolling AB, you know, blue green deployments, right? Um, Multi-tier storage, so gold, silver, bronze classifying of storage, multi-container applications that spawn multiple pods. Um, that's where things start to get really, really, really complicated, right? Then you look at reusable components. What about internal and external service discovery? So you're, I'm provisioning all these different services. Wouldn't it be great if they actually could just figure out without me having to tell them what ports are open and how they should be communicating and actually routing traffic? Yeah, and I mean, that's great. What if my business unit inside of my company builds a, a great utility for authentication, like a transparent proxy application, right, that just completely authenticates the users that are using my application? Now other parts of the business that might need that same functionality can just reuse what I've already built. I don't need, they don't need to go and re I don't know, re-engineer the wheel, I guess? Yeah, you don't have to go throw it all out and just start, you know, use what you built. Right, I so mean, again, that faster iteration thing now starts taking absolutely. a little bit more toll. Great. Yeah, so really, I mean, then you look at the fact that there's, you know, self-service user experiences so that they can actually go in. They can leverage things like the open service broker, right? They can actually, you know, deploy applications from their, their Git repository. Um, they can actually share this information. They can share the registries between one another. Really, at the end of the day, if you move to the next slide, it's, it's a full platform, right? You're talking about the operating system running on top of AWS. You have your packaging format, your security, your telemetry, your logging, your uh, resource allocation, metrics, the ability to actually set you know, hard limits on those and soft limits, mm -hmm. um, setting them to auto scale, which I think is always really cool because you just open up the UI and you just say, hey, give me three of those and it just does it, right? I mean, yeah. how awesome is that? That's great. Okay, so just to kind of recap for my own mind here, yeah, I mean, we spoke about a bunch of things right now, and I mean, I got lost around the middle when we were talking about Kubernetes, and when were we talking about Kubernetes and OpenShift, right? So, so let's review this quickly. In Kubernetes, I get the orchestration. I can basically deploy my containers, my already built containers that, you know, that's there, and orchestrate that, which means that it'll basically deploy them onto different hosts based on the amount of CPU power and memory power they right. have, right? But if I really, truly want some form of automation that does... Granular. So, yeah, re, uh, granular automation and things like uh, security checking and making sure that my platform deploys uh, in a unified manner, the attachment and detachment of storage and transferring that storage as the container moves around and all of those type of things, then I either need to go out and build it myself on top of Kubernetes or I use something like OpenShift that already has that natively in it, right? Is that a fair, is that a that, fair that's, summary? That's a fair assumption, yes. Great. Okay, cool. So, you know, just to recap, you know, the OpenShift container platform is basically a runtime packaging format, orchestration, cluster services, the registry itself, the telemetry for logging, uh, for data allocation, the ability to actually look at the container runtimes, the automation, all of these different things on here, right? And yeah. the so, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. So I mean, okay, this this is great and already sounds good. But I'm I'm thinking as a developer again, right? Like I mean, as a developer, that kind of probably imposes some things on me. Like I said earlier about the fact that I want to use certain libraries and I need to make sure where those libraries of course are secure stuff. 
that's still a lot of work for me as a developer. Is there anything that I can use that will make my development of an application for this platform a little bit easier? Yeah, so we actually developed the container uh, runtime kit, or the CDK. Um, you can run it on any operating system for the most part. You could run it on any hypervisor. You select your target host. So you can actually build out your development and stuff on your own laptop or on you know, specific hypervisors if you want, and then actually take those contents and then deploy them. Uh, the CDK is actually free. We give it away entirely. And you can actually run OpenShift locally on your laptop as part of the CDK. Um, so instead of having to run Minishift or uh, OC Cluster App, for those that are familiar with it, you could actually run everything through the CDK and actually use this like Eclipse and a bunch of other stuff. You could bring libraries into it. It's really, really, really powerful. So, so my security team, for example, can uh, take the CDK, the open source, pro open source project, uh, kind of build their version of the CDK for each of our developers to use. And then I, if I just stick to what's in there, I know that my application will be green light basically from start yeah. to finish. So again, it's just really easy for me to develop, deploy, and make sure that everybody's happy and my manager's off my back. Yep. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sold on that idea. And then we have you know, other things that we tie into. So it's not just a container platform for high availability and monitoring and understanding metrics and workloads and where things are actually allocated. You know, we started tying into things like cloud forms, right? So that you actually have the ability to say, this pod runs on this host, which is consuming you know, these resources in AWS, which therefore is generating this much money. Like having that ability to have that much granularity and understanding what a pod is doing and what it's consuming and what it's costing me, or maybe when I need to actually start setting some triggers to actually, mm -hmm. you know, scale. Um, really, it's like a single pane of glass management, right? Yeah. And the ability to also tie that directly into your AWS infrastructure and pull information from your AWS infrastructure, it's kind of like you're getting the best of all worlds in right, a sense. Right. And it, by the way, that's free with, with OpenShift. We yeah. actually don't charge for CloudForms. It's directly integrated into it. And Nick, what's CloudForms? Uh, so CloudForms is our cloud management platform. Right. So does that, just, does that mean just manage your cloud, or does it manage other things as well? It manages, well, it could do a lot of different things. You could use it for self-service portals. You could use it to actually manage OpenShift clusters. You could use it to provision uh, services and workloads on AWS. You could use it on your... Current environment, if you're running VMware stuff, you could tie it into that as well. Um, so I can transparently manage both my on-premises environment and my cloud environment through one portal. And your containers and your pods. And, and your my hosts. containers and my pods and everything and in then, one place. Yeah, and you could plug it into things like um, Satellite and Insights and Ansible wow. Tower to do all of your deployment. So really, it's kind of like the glue that sticks a lot of stuff together. That's pretty cool. And, and these will uh, monitor and notify me if anything on my infrastructure layers are, are yep. not acting the way I expect them to. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot of people that use it. They tie it into like self-service catalogs in a sense, right? They provide a skin around it. And then when someone says, hey, I need this size of a container or a VM and this geolocation that meets this criteria, and it sends it off and gets the approval, and it actually builds it and deploys it. Right. So the developer can say what he needs, he deploys his YAML and... Yeah, because going back to the same thing, like I'm a developer, I have a timeline, I need to get things out the door as quickly as I can, right? We live in the world of perpetual beta right now. Yeah. So, you know, every morning I wake up and my phone tells me I have 53 apps that I need to update. You know, it feels like I'm, I'm never up to date when it comes to anything. Yeah, it's because we have so many new technologies coming out the whole time, right? People yeah. are really racing to keep up to date. And I mean, the apps that I'm using are the ones that have the latest technology, yeah. right? If they can do OCR scanning on my receipts, I'm going to use it. Yeah, and then the Red Hat Cloud Suite really kind of ties all of that stuff together in a sense. So uh, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, um, unified management framework and orchestration for heimless, uh, hybrid models, um, the ability to seamlessly manage uh, infrastructure to applications, your middleware, whatever. So that really kind of like 
ties the entire suite together if you're looking at cloud forms and OpenShift and wow. running it on AWS in a sense. Yeah, that's great. So I know that uh, OpenShift can sometimes be a daunting thing to deploy. I know that you guys well, did some really... All container platforms are. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty difficult thing to do. And I know that uh, Red Hat did some fantastic work on the OpenShift Ansible playbooks, right? Yep. Um, and guess what? We at Amazon kind of noticed that, and we decided we want to take that a little bit further, right? So we built what we call the Red Hat OpenShift Quick Start, right? Which is a reference architecture that leverages that technology that you built into the OpenShift Ansible spec, as well as our native Lambda features, right? Which is our serverless application service, uh, uh, compute service, to build a Quick Start that automatically deploys a completely uh, reference architecture uh, observant deployment of OpenShift. So how complicated is it to deploy this? Absolutely not complicated at all. You go to that link or that, that URL that's down there for the OpenShift Quick Start, you click on it, you type in the name of the, the class that you want, and you click Launch. That's basically it. That's it. That's it. It builds all this. It builds all of that. It gives you three master nodes and three availability zones, right? So that high availability thing we spoke about, you get that immediately. It deploys three infrastructure nodes in three availability zones. What about load balancing? What it about? It puts load balances and everything in front of your application so that it automatically load balances your application requests coming in. And it uses the AWS ELB service, which is a known and very trusted service uh, and which our customers are, um, are in love with. And we also put all of our infrastructure nodes and our application nodes, uh, and even our master nodes in auto-scaling, auto-healing, uh, uh, auto-scaling groups, right? So is this based on like the reference architecture deployment stuff? It is, indeed. It is completely based on the reference architecture that you guys wrote up. Wow. So it is a, exactly that, it's a reference architecture <laughs> deployment of OpenShift, and it's a one-click deployment. You don't have to have extensive knowledge of how to use Ansible or OpenShift playbooks or anything like that. You just go to the website, it's a CloudFormation template, you ingest it into AWS, and AWS will launch all of the infrastructure that you need. So for what you. if I'm interested in like exploring, you know, OpenShift, I'm already running a container platform, I want to know a little bit more, like what are the next steps with that? Well, the, the, the next steps for you is to basically contact any of us. There's an alias that we have that you guys have set up, and we're all monitoring it. And you can reach out to us, and we'll uh, work with you. And if you have a customer that wants to try it out and play with it, or if you are a partner that wants to get more education on it, we can do a POC with you. So we have a POC program that is currently going and where we will actually give credits towards uh, the, your AWS bill, and you guys will be giving credits towards the OpenShift licensing. Oh, wow. Okay, very cool. Yeah. So anybody can play with it, and we are you know, super excited about doing this with our customers. Oh, there we go. That's the, the POC program. If you, if you want to get involved, you just read out to, to, uh, to Mansi. You've got the email address there, uh, or you can send it to the AWS NA Red Hat uh, alias as well. What if I'm like a solutions provider, solutions integrator, and I want to get experience with that? Can I you, do that as well? You can use the exact same email address and just send us, and please let us know what you want to do. Okay. Uh, we are looking for SIs, and we're looking for, for partners that will work with our customers and, and, and do all of that. Um, so I think that's everything I've got to say. Do you have anything more to say? No, no, no. I mean, that's a lot to cover, so... Yeah, you know. so I think, I think everybody's tired of listening to us, but I think there might be a couple of questions in the audience. Is there any questions that you might have? Great question. So the question is, for a, custom, for a customer that, or a company that's already running in AWS, uh, how does this compare to our services like EKS, EKS and ECS, EKS that was just launched uh, recently? Like we said earlier, there's a difference between um, Kubernetes and OpenShift, right? Now, Kubernetes 
is more reference or is more akin to EKS and ECS than OpenShift is. Uh, it's again, you can use EKS. EKS and ECS manages some of the cluster management and auto scaling for you. But getting that automation, that security, that agility, the pipelining, um, the, the the trusted uh, infrastructure and the trusted runtimes, all of those things aren't available in that. You, if you want to use those services, you need to go and build those parts out and manage and own those parts again on your own as well. And for some customers, that that's a way to go. And if they they're available and they are capable of doing that themselves, then they, they should totally do that. Uh, OpenShift provides them with that all-in-one solution, a single pane of glass that helps them focus on their application rather than building ancillary projects and applications around the basic container orchestration. And the great thing is also single throat to choke too, right? Yeah. So if something goes wrong, you don't have to contact 19 different vendors to actually figure out where the problem is specifically lying. I, I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there before. Uh, in a previous role, I was actually a director of cloud services, and we got stuck in the blame game where every company was passing it <laughs> off for, yeah. for 24 hours while our infrastructure was down. That's so. actually a, yeah, a very good point. We didn't even really mention that, but with OpenShift comes that support relationship that you get with Red Hat, right? So yeah. you can literally phone them up and say, hey, this isn't working, tell me why. You know, uh, and that's not something you get with open source projects. Um, uh, and with a managed service like EKS, you get a certain amount of that, but it breaks down when you start thinking about if you're in introducing something like concourse for your pipelining. Right? right? Who do you phone if that builds if that breaks down, um, and so forth? Do we have any other questions? Huh? That must be a good sign. I guess we either put them all to sleep, or oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've got one here and there, so let's let's take this one quickly. Uh, uh, I have a question about the self-service part. Uh, so for example, I have a YAML deployment mm -hmm. uh, for service, and also I have, I have things like give me S3 bucket and provision uh, RDS. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have two questions with that. So for example, can I restrict a developer so he would not create a database mm -hmm. bigger than X? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the question is, in the self-service model and using the AWS Service Broker, uh, first question, can I restrict the resource sizes that they are going to provision and how much each and what services a developer can uh, provision? And secondly, if they deprovision those resources, does it get cleaned up uh, inside of your AWS account as well? So those are the two questions. The first question is, yes, you can have complete control over the uh, services that get exposed to each project and to each platform uh, and what type type of services they are allowed to provision, and what sizes, for example, in, in RDS. Uh, and the second one is the underlying um, technology that we leverage from an AWS perspective to make the service broker work in a, in a compliant manner is our CloudFormation technology. So if you deep, when the deep provisioning process gets kicked off, CloudFormation goes out and rolls everything back. So yes, it cleans up completely after it gets deleted as well. And of course you have the security to make sure that they cannot delete that unless they're allowed yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, and because the, the service broker fits in with the complete role-based access control features that OpenShift have. Right. Any other questions? There we go. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, okay, so the question is, uh, OpenShift, will OpenShift have Windows container uh, functionality and support in the future? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're working very closely with Microsoft on building native uh, Windows uh, technology for management of containers. Um, 
So I, I could give you a little bit more information on that offstage. Um, we could just talk about it. Yeah. Um, and when OpenShift supports it, it'll be supported natively in AWS as well on day zero. Yep. Yeah. Uh, any other questions? Yep. You can. Yeah, so the question is, in the quick start that we have, can you deploy uh, OpenShift Origin, which is the upstream version of OCP? Yes, you can. When in the quick start, you'll have a choice between OCP and Origin, so you can deploy either of the two. Yeah, the main difference is between the two, if you choose OCP instead of like, the Origin versus the actual container platform or enterprise-based product, is you have to use your RHN account to log in to actually pull the subscriptions. If you use Origin, you don't have to worry about doing that. Yeah. So the question is, can I use an external existing Jenkins um, uh, uh, deployment to automate my pipelining? Yes, you Absolutely. can. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, come, we, we, we bundle Jenkins directly with it, but you could use as many different you know, build uh, tools that you want. So if you have multiple different Jenkins you know, deployments, maybe you're separating or segmenting your staging from your production from whatever. You actually you, you can directly tie that into it, and then you can actually set the the authentication so that only users can actually pull code and run code directly from certain Jenkins servers. Um, I saw a hand there. I don't know if you just woke up and stretched, or if there was an actual question. Okay, you just woke up and stretched <laughs> out. Uh, cool. Any other questions? Right. So the question is, how quickly, or, um, how realistically do we think the latest version of Kubernetes will be available in, in OpenShift? Um, Nick? So from in OpenShift origin, it's pretty much almost lockstep. From the time that it goes GA, it, we're already starting to roll it into origin because origin is our upstream. We then therefore work out all of the bugs and issues and really kind of focus on the big things that are being introduced in the iteration of Kubernetes. Like a lot of people are really interested in federated masters in a sense, right? So those are big things that we want to incorporate in the next version and iteration. Um, so usually, I mean, we're, we're usually a few weeks behind for the most part, but it's not quarters or half a year or anything along those lines. It's moving too quickly at this point. If we, yeah. if we were to wait that long, you know, we'd be going from 1.7 to 2.0, you yeah. know. I think, I think one of the, uh, the things that need to be kind of made clear is that the OpenShift platform doesn't actually alter the Kubernetes deployment. Correct. It uses the, the basics uh, upstream deployment. It's it just the OpenShift in, uh, platform interfaces with the native Kubernetes augments API. It. it augments it. So they don't need to go and change anything or um, backport any code changes or anything like that. They literally can just consume it as is, and the OpenShift platform will work. Why there's a delay in the OCP deployment is that they need to make sure that it's hardened, uh, because when, with OCP, which is the container platform, the, the, the licensed one, uh, they put a stamp of approval saying that we will support this. So they need to make sure that uh, whatever was changed in the upstream is actually not uh, affected or broken. Or yeah, that ties like to like our legal compliance and all the other things yeah. that Red Hat brings to the table when it comes yeah. to RHEL. And, and but Origin is basically just available. Any other questions? Cool. I think that's it. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. We really appreciate it. And uh, enjoy the rest of your reInvent. And don't forget about tonight's replay party. 
uh, it's going to be a pretty big one. I heard it's going to be insane. You guys built a bridge for it. We did. We <laughs> built a bridge over the road, so that's fantastic. <laughs>